Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times podcast on politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the international reaction to the US airstrikes in Syria and whether Theresa May is softening her Brexit negotiating stance. I'm delighted to be joined by Rula Halaf, the FT's deputy editor, David Gardner, our international affairs editor, columnist Janan Ganesh, and political correspondent Henry Manns. Thank you all for joining. Let's begin with the US airstrikes in Syria. President Donald Trump surprised the world on Friday morning by launching dozens of Tomahawk missiles into a Syrian airfield following a chemical gas attack earlier in the week that had killed over 70 people. It is the first military action of the Trump presidency and received the backing of nearly everyone in the West from Britain and France to also Saudi Arabia. Russia, which is still supporting the brutal Assad regime, however, condemned the strikes and this raises the question of whether Trump's efforts of having detente with Vladimir Putin are now over. Rula, let's begin with the idea of these strikes. Were they a good idea? I think they were necessary. You have to think of these strikes as a calibrated, limited and calibrated response to the chemical weapons attack. That was a red line under the Obama administration. A deal was made with Russia. The chemical weapons are supposed to have been taken out of Syria or destroyed. That red line was crossed again. And this was not the first chemical attack in Syria. It just happened to be a bit larger. And so it captured a lot more attention, including the attention clearly of Donald Trump. So I think the red line was crossed again. And this time there had to be a response. And there's no doubt about this chemical gas attack. We've heard several stories from Russia and what have you claiming it's not all quite what it seems to be. I don't think so. I mean, all the evidence that we've seen so far, including some journalists who've went there, including the autopsies of some of the victims, including the intelligence that the Americans have and that others have, it suggests that it was an attack from the air. David Gardner, it's obviously a very complicated situation on the ground here. What difference will these strikes make, if anything? Yeah, just to pick up on what Rula just said, three of those autopsies were carried out in Turkey, where I am just at the minute, and they showed very clearly nerve gas agents. What difference will this make on the ground? It's hard to know if this is intended as some administration officials and indeed Pentagon officials have suggested it's a one-off. Or there's been a certain amount of ambiguity as well. For example, Rex Tillerson, Mr. Trump's Secretary of State, saying don't extrapolate anything. This is a change in policy or anything like that. But at the same time, he said Assad could not remain in power. The question then becomes, how can the US, if it wants to, proceed from here in alliance with whom? It could relatively easily, I think, destroy Syria's much depleted air force, 
But trying to force the Assads out altogether, that clearly risks a collision with Russia, which has its air force in place and is the main reason why Bashar al-Assad himself is still in place. But nothing is black and white, which is the sort of binary choice that one suspects President Trump likes. Not in Syria. For example, Moscow has been looking the other way now for a good nine months, while Israel, Israeli Air Force, increases the frequency of its airstrikes on what it says are Iranian weapons deliveries through Syria, and therefore inside Syria, they're bombing, to Lebanon's paramilitary Hezbollah, which is allied with Russia on the Syrian battlefield. I doubt very much whether Mr. Putin who is reasserting Russian power regionally and globally, would be inclined to consent to any regularity of the U.S. carrying out punitive strikes on its Syrian ally, however. I think that's a very good point. But it's why it is most likely and what would be most important is for the Trump administration and the Russians to be able to reach a diplomatic solution for Syria rather than the Trump administration engaging in more military strikes, which, as David says, I think the Russians would have a problem with. The Russians have already said that they're ending the deconfliction, yeah, the airstrike policy, which is problematic because, as you know, there are a lot of people flying and bombing over Syria. To me, the question is whether there is the potential now for more of a diplomatic understanding between the Americans and the Russians, because Assad is actually a liability now for Putin. He's not just a liability for Syria. He is becoming a liability for Putin. Whether Putin will see it that way I don't know. This is the range the question about the end game for Syria now, because the language about whether Assad can stay in place as part of a transition or the UK has taken a position for a while now saying that Assad cannot be part of that now. Russia has a different view on that. And that's what might be about to change because of this, you think? Well, I think in the US, policy is still being made and it's very reactive. So when David says, what is the policy? I'm pretty sure that within the administration, they don't know yet what is their policy. Three days ago, their policy was, it's up to Syrians to decide the fate of Assad. Yesterday, the policy was Assad cannot stay. So I think we have to wait and see whether they settle on a policy before we even begin to think of how they're going to implement that policy. This is the big question, David, because Donald Trump's foreign policy has very much been a relatively closed one, saying he wouldn't get involved in foreign affairs and he criticised all the US's military involvement throughout his presidential campaign. And by doing this, it certainly seems a different turn for President Trump's view of the world and of the Syria situation and of the US's relationship with Russia. Yeah, I mean, people who come in with a supposedly hard-nosed, realism-based incipient policy very quickly collide with the reality of what they think they're talking about. I mean, one understands easily why there is a temptation, not just in the US, but in parts of Europe as well, to say, oh, well, the least bad option is just to muddle on with the Assad. Who are the principal stimulus, I would argue, of what they consider 
the worst option, which is rampant jihadi extremism of the type presented by ISIS and al-Qaeda. But equally, it is so tempting because you think, okay, if we do that, then we can reverse the migrant flows that are destabilizing Europe. We can concentrate altogether on fighting ISIS and so on and so forth. And this doesn't really survive more than a cursory glance, frankly. You're talking about 11 million, half the population of Syria that's been displaced. And the Assads are very clear that some of this demographic upheaval, which affects above all the majority Sunni population, is intended to be permanent. They have no plans to reverse an equation which has momentarily refloated their minority regime. People equally are not going to go back into a police state where Air Force intelligence, which has a gulag of killing centers, remains entirely intact. All of this is, as I said at the other, an enormous stimulus. It's the pool of despair on which ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other jihadis fish, on which they feed. It's extremely complex, mind-bendingly complex, and not susceptible to easy black-and-white solutions. I think there's also a misconception about what the regime in Syria is. There's this yes. view that there's a state in Syria, and if we remove this regime, then the state collapses. The state has collapsed in Syria, and yes. this regime is simply a mafia family with a competing set of intelligence agencies that are all extremely corrupt and working against each other. There are so many stories now about what they're doing to the people who've been loyal to them, let alone the opposition. So the idea that there is a permanent stay for what people call this regime, it's a fantasy. Rula, just to come back to the point on Donald Trump here and his positioning, you know, what made that change of mind that I referenced to her, this idea that he really did run on a platform of we are not going to get involved in other countries' matters to now, 76 days into his presidency, conducting airstrikes? I think it's impossible to know exactly whether there was an emotional reaction to what he saw. I mean, as we know, he watches a lot of television. But there is something else here, and that is that he has always blamed the Obama administration for weakening America's position in the world. He doesn't want to get involved at the same time. So there's always been this tension, this contradiction in his own position. And it is clear that he believes that acting tough sends a message beyond Syria. What happened last night was not only about Syria. It was about the position of the US. It was about sending a message, I'm a tough guy. And I'm going to act. And David, this is the interesting thing of the timing, because obviously the US-China summit is beginning right now. And this all happened, was tied up into it. What's China's view of this going to be? As Rula said, this was, I think, almost certainly a message for Pyongyang and Beijing as much as it was to Tehran and Damascus and Moscow, of course. So China has up until now played very much second fiddle to Russia, certainly in the geopolitical and military game. China has increased its interests in and its investment in areas of the Middle East, particularly the Gulf, and from the Gulf has actually used bases like Dubai to look after most of it, in fact, virtually all of its African interests, except for in South Africa. So 
that's the cautious way in which they look at it. But they have tended to, not always, but often, reinforce the diplomatic shield that Russia has provided the Assads with in the Security Council. And now back to Brexit. Parliament has been in recess this week and not much has happened in domestic British politics. But Theresa May might have just about begun softening her Brexit negotiating stance. The Prime Minister admitted that free movement of people might very well continue into a transition period after the UK has left the EU. This is not a surprise given the fact that the EU has remained resolute on its four freedoms. So was this an acceptance of reality that people have often said or a signal that her position is moving closer to that of Brussels? Janine Ganesh, so Theresa May, the general perception about her has been that she cannot go into a general election without having done something on migration. On the flip side, she doesn't want this cliff-edge crash Brexit out of the EU. So allying those two things is going to be difficult. And there seem to be some expectations management setting going on here, saying to people, prepare yourself. Immigration is not going to suddenly come way down, but free movement is going to continue. And this is a bit of a problem for her because there's plenty in her party and also in UKIP who will say to her, well, you've actually broken that vow of reducing migration that was made during the referendum campaign. Yeah, the premiership has been a learning experience for Theresa May. I don't think she expected dealing with the EU to be as uh, knotty and as difficult as it has been. It seems fairly apparent that she cannot count on a fully-fledged trade deal with the European Union taking force the day we leave. Therefore, there has to be some kind of bridging interim arrangement. Implementation phase, I believe, is her favourite term for it. Exactly. And during that phase, you'd assume the EU would insist on observation of pretty much all of the four freedoms, including freedom of labour. I actually don't think there's a big political price to be paid for playing down expectations. It'll annoy some of the sort of John Redwood-type, fairly far-gone Eurosceptic Tory MPs who think she's selling out. But really, it's a bit of mild criticism, which buys her the ability to prepare public opinion for net migration still being in the hundreds of thousands, possibly into the next election. As long as she can say, look, there's a tangible reason to believe that beyond 2020, we can get it substantially down. I don't think there's a massive political cost to her saying what she said. And part of that is the fact that any transition implementation is going to have a fixed end. I think the EU is quite clear on that, that three, five years or whatever it is, they are not going to let this run on and on and on. Yeah, completely. And in many ways, the much bigger question is when the transition is over and this country does have 100% latitude to control migration, even then are we able to get it down substantially? Because then there'll be pressing economic reasons not to get it down. While she was Home Secretary, she tried her absolute level best, squeezed even high-skilled migration, and didn't get it down because even outside of the EU, where migrants came from countries where we do have control over their arrival, there was so much business demand for them, they were so valuable to us that we had to let them in. And I, it would be the ultimate, I was going to say irony, maybe uh, Nigel Farage would say tragedy, that in 10 years' time with complete control over migration, we still have pretty considerable inward migration because the economy 
absolutely depends on it for its basic functions. This is a slight paradox, Henry, isn't it? Because there's nobody at the top of Theresa May's government who probably is very invested in getting migration down the way Nigel Farage or Paul Nuttall of UKIP would like to see that. And people that I've spoken to in Degsview and in the Home Office both say that you would be surprised at how liberal, as a quote, Britain's migration policy will be after Brexit. Instead of making the EU non-EU divide, it's all going to be about the skilled non-skilled divide. Now that might be good in an economic sense because obviously skilled migration is what the economy needs for those high-paying, high-tax paying jobs. But on the other hand, that popular demand in the country to bring migration down to hit that 100,000 limit Janana was talking to, that could certainly lead to something on the far right. UKIP I think is a force I think is sort of done. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but some kind of force could make hay out of that? I think it's an interesting question. A lot of the concern around immigration, you could argue, is a media phenomenon. If you're living in Clacton where you're not experiencing a whole lot of immigration, but you see that as one of the great national issues facing Britain today, it can only really come through the experience of newspapers and TV. So if we have lots of the media giving Theresa May the benefit of the doubt over quite a long period because we're not just talking, we're talking sort of beyond the next general election that until you see concrete results either way. Then I, I think actually people could be assuaged with just the prospect of control. And so I don't necessarily believe that it's the actual number of, of migrants coming in or even the net number that matters over the long term. At the same time, I think if Theresa May is really saying you won't see significant changes in terms of migration, in terms of the role of the European Court of Justice in having an impact on what happens in the UK, then she's going to have to feed the beast with something else. I mean, you've had a, a cutting red tape campaign by the Telegraph or a Royal Yacht campaign, but do you have to satisfy some of those instinct on behalf of the Tory right? This is the sort of ironic thing about the Brexit vote that the areas, Clacton, Sunderland, all those areas that voted very heavily to leave the EU have actually had some of the least lowest levels of migration in the country. I think there's some evidence that the change in migration was influential, was correlated with a leave vote. So if you've, you've had a very sharp increase in the number of foreign-born people or migrants, I forget exactly how the data is correlated, but it's not that strong, the correlation. Mm. Now, that was always my guess as to what was happening, which is that what really shakes people up is not the total quantity of migration in their area. Exactly. So London going from whatever it was, 25% foreign-born to 35% foreign-born is spectacular objectively, but doesn't trouble us because we're used to it. If you live in a community where you had a 1% foreign-born population and it went up to 2%, that is a doubling. And it's infinitesimal from a London perspective. But for them, they feel it much more sharply. And I think that's why it wasn't so irrational that low migration communities ended up being so vigorously anti-migration. One of the things I'm quite interested in is how Theresa May is going to play this sort of betrayal thing. I wrote some about this in the FT this week because I think there is a sense that what was promised during the referendum campaign, they were all popular slogans and leave, I think, didn't actually think they were going to win, least of all having to implement it. And if a vote leave character had become Prime Minister, say, Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, they would actually be in a much tougher position than Theresa May because they would have to find £350 for the NHS, all the things that were promised in the referendum. But it's going to be a problem for her at some point because she's going to have to make those compromises. We talked about migration. The other big one, of course, is money. And she's carefully crafted this phrase, which is that we will no longer send large sums of money to the EU. That doesn't mean you couldn't have a one-off payment. And that doesn't mean you couldn't still send something for ongoing programmes. And the question is, if she has to go on those two things, will that put her in trouble domestically, do you think? Quite possibly it will put her in 
trouble with her party. So I, I agree with you, UKIP is probably dead. The hope I would hold out for them is that if in a few years' time we're still observing de facto, if not de jure, most ECJ rulings on product standards, technical regulations, if we're still receiving hundreds of thousands in net migration, lots from Europe, and we're still paying in something quite substantial, and we're re-opting back into various EU institutions and schemes, then there might be a potential for a resurgence of Euroscepticism. That makes life tricky for her. I would advise to remain optimistic of pro-Europeans because I've always thought that their best hope is that we leave and end up slowly rejoining in all but name and that in not in a few years' time but in a decade's time our relationship is so enmeshed that it's almost hard to distinguish from total membership. It won't be called total membership, that's too provocative, but we'll be paying in, we'll be subject directly or indirectly to the ECJ. We may even have gone back into bits of market access by then and substantial amounts of migration will still be happening. Theresa May has form with this, with the JHAs, which are Justice and Home Affairs Arrangements, and yeah. when she was Home Secretary, she opted out of 130, I think, and then opted back into 35 of them, including the European Arrest Warrant, which some of her party were very unhappy yeah. about. Yeah, and I think things like the Erasmus Scheme, European Investment Bank, Europol, etc., may over time just seem to be too practically useful to not have. Yeah, for the first time, uh, there's actually an opportunity to make the case for these arrangements, albeit as a beaten minority. But the Lib Dems are doing that. We're coming to terms with actually what we've been a part of over the past couple of decades. And we may see if the Brexit process gets complicated, the benefits of yeah rejoining in part. I think that is something that is still up for grabs. And what's your take, Henry, on Theresa May's domestic position here? The fact that the Labour Party is still in no man's land electorally it seems to be she's in a good position here. And as Janan said, she's able to soften the ground on these things and nobody really seems to mind that much. I think she is proving quite hard for her opponents to pin down in some ways because at some point she's suggesting it will be what we used to define as a hard Brexit and out of the single market, out of the customs union. But even with the customs union point, she's saying, well, you know, we won't be a member of it in its current form or we won't be a full member, I think was Philip Hammond's recent formulation of it. So that would suggest, right, you attack her for it on a hard Brexit. But then she comes round on some issues such as migrations, on things that Nick Clegg was worried about, for example, that there would be a breakdown in talks and things would become too complicated and Britain would be thrown into turmoil. She's saying, well, we will have this holding period when everything can get resolved. Easy to say... But I think it's difficult for both the UKIP lot and for Lib Dems and even for Labour to say exactly what they're dealing with. And the talks seem to have begun in a fairly good fashion, as good as could be expected, Janan. Donald Tusk came to London this week after the letters to sort of say, look, everything's fine, we're going to remain in close contact. And we had this rather bizarre row about Gibraltar as well, which seems to have blown over. There'll be obviously plenty more of those, but it generally seems as if it's on a relatively good footing. I don't know about that. I think it helps that Theresa May's position seems to have softened, so that generates goodwill at the very beginning. If there is a bit of goodwill at the moment, I think it will fade pretty quickly. The question of mutual recognition of each other's migrant and residents might be fairly easy to resolve. Even the financial question might be fairly easy to resolve. But then you're into the really tough technical stuff about how much observation of regulations in return for how much market access, the precise detail and shape of the future deal. And from the EU side, their big fear is not that we're driving an incredibly hard bargain, but we just don't know what we're doing. We haven't got the negotiators. We haven't got the ministerial experience. The Secretary of State, David Davis, in charge of all this smart guy, practical guy, hasn't been a minister since the mid-1990s. So it's a learning experience for all of them. And I think the lack of technical facility on our part will make the negotiations quite difficult 
that breeds resentment and that breeds a lot of the opposite of what you mentioned, which is not goodwill, but strife, I think, this year. And then just very briefly to touch on the other political story of this week, Henry, before we wrap up, Ken Livingstone, who's the former mayor of London, Labour MP, who's made some very bizarre comments over the past couple of months. Hold about... on, but he retired from politics in 2012. Why, why are we discussing <laughs> five years later? This is a very good question. He's popped up to talk about links between Nazism and Zionism, and he was censured by the Labour Party this week, but not kicked out of the party here. And the whole thing's bobbing into a nice little Westminster row. Do you think Ken eventually be kicked out of the Labour Party and does it even matter? I think that I think that lots of people in the Labour Party, including even Jeremy Corbyn, a longtime friend of Ken, have understood that it doesn't play well and it isn't enough just to say it, not even that his membership is suspended, but that he won't be able to have representative positions. I think the best point I've heard made about this is get away from the semantic argument around Hitler and Zionism that Ken would like to make. The point is the lack of sympathy and the lack of empathy with which Livingston has made his point around historical facts. And that's not something you want to be associated with if you're a party that wants to be in government. The lack of empathy, but also the consistency with which he's been harping on about this going back best part of a decade now. Run-ins with reporters, offhand remarks, and then this eccentric theory about the Nazis. I think as soon as the Labour Party chose not to enforce the strongest punishment, it stopped being a story about Ken Livingston started being a reflection on the Labour Party and specifically maybe Shami Chakrabarti who oversaw a report on anti-Semitism within the Labour Party uh, I think last year concluded that there was not a huge amount to worry about strangely. Well, the Ken saga will continue. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.